Good evening. Uh, a very warm welcome to you all to our six o'clock uh, service. Uh, it's great to welcome you here. If you're visiting, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, it's great that you're able to be with us uh, tonight. And if that is you, if you're, well, if you're visiting, do uh, say hello to, uh, to me after, uh, after the service. It'd be great to uh, get to know you a little bit better. So uh, before we start, uh, let's just uh, take a moment uh, to still our hearts uh, and be mindful of the fact that we come into the presence of God uh, to offer him our worship. So let me just uh, pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this evening, for gathering us uh, together. Father, we pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit and through your word this evening, uh, that you would speak to us. Father, we pray that the truth of who you are, who we are, and your love for us, Father, I pray uh, that that would settle into the very core of our being. Shape us, mould us, and transform us with those truths, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So um, if you have your Bibles, um, the passage today is John 2, 1 to 12. So Jesus changes water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he was re- he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Lovely. Well, thank you, Karen. Uh, and good evening, everyone. Uh, it's lovely to see you all. Uh, tonight, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of John uh, as we look to keep discovering who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, do keep your Bibles open uh, and let me pray uh, before we dive into God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself and your son, Jesus to us through your words uh, and we pray tonight as we come to hear from you um, that our hearts will be soft and will be ready to be changed by the power of your spirit as you speak through your word Lord, i pray you tell me speak clearly and faithfully and that we'd come away loving the lord jesus more as a result so we ask for your help in jesus name amen amen lovely Uh, Now, I'm sure all of us have been to a wedding uh, at some point. It may not have been for a while uh, with COVID and restrictions, but uh, weddings are wonderful occasions, aren't they? Uh, Days full of celebration and joy as we celebrate two people joining together. Uh, They're days with uh, great music. There's always some great food uh, and wonderful time just spent with friends and with family. 
Um, as someone who's in the mid-twenties, you seem to be going to a wedding every couple of weeks at the moment. But the joy never seems to get old. They're wonderful days, days that seem perfect. Um, but if you are married and you've had your own wedding, then you'll know that quite often behind the scenes, things aren't quite as perfect as they seem. That there's always something that just goes a little bit wrong, isn't there? The flowers that aren't quite as you wanted them. That... That last minute seating plan changing, someone in the band being ill, the best man's speech just being a little bit too far over the line. For Tash and I, uh, it was the food that went wrong. Now, as any proud Scotsman would do, we thought we'd cut some costs uh, and we'd try and do the food ourselves. Um, So we got a whole load of pies in, gathered a team in together to cook them. Uh, And about three quarters of the way through serving, we realised that we were about... 25 or so pies short. It was an absolute disaster, right? Thankfully, we managed to send a team just round the corner to the chip shop, bringing a whole load of chips for the people who missed out. Uh, and to be fair, I think they preferred the chips than the pies, actually. Uh, but we managed it to cover up uh, and get away with it. In the end, we realized it wasn't our fault. The company had sent us less pies, so we got our money back, which is an even bigger result. <laughs> So at the end of the day, no one was really too bothered, uh, and we managed to gloss over. Everyone was happy. Um, But in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, we see something very similar happen. But instead of just being able to gloss over it, it would have had much more serious consequences. Now, it's important to note as we come to this passage, a key thing uh, about Jewish weddings and culture. Uh, Unlike now, when it's the bride's family who pays for the wedding, uh, back in those days, it was the groom's responsibility. Uh, His job was to to turn up on time, say I do, but also make sure that everyone had everything they needed for all the celebrations that were going to be going on. Uh, And they could have been going on for a long time, could have been going on for a whole week. It was quite a big party that was going to happen. And so we see at this wedding, who's at the wedding? Let's read verse 1 and 2 with me. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. We see Jesus and his disciples at a wedding. Now, just as a little aside here, isn't it amazing that we see Jesus go to a wedding? I love the fact that we see Jesus, the son of God, go to a wedding of what most certainly would have been with some friends and family. We don't know exactly who it was that was getting married, but being in Galilee and how weddings were, it would have been a close family member or some close friends. I don't know about you, but sometimes we have this picture of Jesus as being a bit stuffy, a bit stuck up, all about obeying rules and solely focused on super spiritual things. But in fact, here we clearly see him value spending time with friends, celebrating and enjoying time with his family. I do think it's a it's an important thing to remember. Jesus says himself a little bit later on in the book of John, in chapter 10, that he's come to bring life, and life in all its fullness, life full of joy and celebration. And here we see Jesus living that perfect, joyful life. Jesus isn't just some stuffy rule keeper. He is the divine son of God, who in this moment would have been eating and drinking with his friends, maybe even getting up for a dance, you know, dancing queen, sweet Caroline, you know, wedding classics. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And here he is living out his perfect human life by celebrating with his friends. I think it just gives us a much broader and realer picture of who Jesus is. 
But as Jesus is here, we see that disaster isn't far away. Let's see what happens. Look at the beginning of verse 3. The wine was gone. The wine had run out. The groom here has had an absolute shocker, right? His wedding, his big party that he was in charge of, was on the verge of collapse. He had a nightmare. How could he ever be expected to, to provide for his wife when he couldn't even make sure that the wedding had everything it needed? He was never going to be able to live this down. The shame that he was about to bring on himself, his family, his wife, his wife's family would have been huge. Wine was a, a vital part of the wedding celebration and there was none left. Well, what was he going to do? He couldn't just pop down the off license around the corner and get a few crates with his ushers. No, he was, he was scuppered. This must have been one of his worst nightmares in the lead up to the day. There was nothing that he could do about this situation. And as Jesus is here at his wedding, he hears of this impending disaster. His mother comes up to him and says in the second part of verse 3, she comes and says, they have no more wine. Now, men in the room, we know that when a woman comes up and says something like this, we know what she really means, right? But when Tash comes up and says to me, Cal, the kitchen bins are full again. She's not just telling me an interesting fact about the state of our kitchen. She's saying, Cal, can you go and take the bins out? If you're not sure, as I speak, you can have that one for free. Um, but, but joking aside, we see, we see Mary come to Jesus here. And she's basically asked, they've got no more wine, Jesus. What, what can you do about this? Uh, at this point, Mary is probably the only person who really knew uh, who Jesus was. And, and she clearly assumes that he can help. Now, his response does seem a little bit strange in verse 4. Look what Jesus says. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this may seem like a, a disrespectful way of referring to your mother, but, but back in those days, that was actually a term of respect. So Jesus isn't just being cheeky here. This is him showing respect. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Uh, and this is a phrase that comes up time and time again in John's gospel. Jesus saying that his time hasn't come. Now, you might expect with him saying this that he wasn't going to do anything. Surely he was going to wait until his time had come to do something. But yet here, we see Jesus go on to do something incredible. What he's about to do isn't the reason why he's come, but he still goes on to do it anyway. Let's carry on and see what happens. Read me verse 6 to 9. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the wine the water that had been turned into wine. Now these big jars, John says, held from 20 to 30 gallons, which is a lot of water, uh, far more than would actually have been needed at the time. And Jesus asked for them all to be filled right to the brim. Now that's a, that's a lot of water. And what does Jesus do? He tells the servants in verse 8 to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now, they, they did so. They took some water to the master of the banquet, no doubt being a little bit confused, not sure really what's going on. And what did the master of the banquet discover? 
master of the banquet tasted the wine, the water, and it had been turned into wine. Jesus had turned each and every drop of that water into wine. The common estimate is that would have been about a thousand bottles of wine. That's a, that's a huge amount, right? Huge amount of wine. Jesus had made sure they were filled to the brim so, so no one could accuse him of just watering down some other wine. He turned all of it into wine. Now, I don't know a lot about wine. I can't stand the stuff myself. But I know enough to say that the process of making wine is a long and slow and, and complicated process. It's not just like squeezing a bunch of grapes and, and there you've got wine. No, there's so much involved with it. But what does Jesus do? He does it in an instant. He turns water into wine. How is that possible? H2O doesn't just change into C2, H5OH, into alcohol just by itself. But that's what seems to happen. Water into wine. Now, I'm sure many of us have been to uh, a magic show or or been to a a science museum at some point, but we've seen some pretty weird and wonderful things, like a rabbit out of a hat, some flames changing colour, you know, that sort of thing. But with anything like that, there's always a little bit of sleight of hand or some fancy chemical equation that goes into it that can explain it pretty simply. The things that make it look complicated and look impossible, but actually quite simple if you know what you're doing. But here, this isn't just kind of some David Blaine-esque magic trick. What Jesus does here is the real deal. No sleight of hand, no secret ingredient. Jesus has turned water into wine. He's done something that is physically impossible. Jesus, as as he steps into this situation here, proves that he controls the laws of chemistry itself. John has already alluded to this back in John chapter 1 that we looked at a few weeks ago. That Jesus is the one in chapter 1 verse 3 through which all things have been made. And so here is Jesus proving that very fact. That he has power over creation. Just as only God has. Jesus has incredible power to perform this incredible miracle. And what does he do with his power? Well he saves The shame of the groom by providing what he cannot. He doesn't make a big song and dance about it. He quietly and carefully does this incredible thing as if it were nothing. But but notice that it isn't just any old wine that Jesus creates here. Look at what the master of the banquet says in verse 10. He calls the groom aside and he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. It's not any old wine. This is the good stuff. This isn't your 2.99 bottle of Echo Falls. No, this is your extra special vintage wine. The master of the banquet would have been someone who would have known his wines. So there's no doubt that this would have been very, very good wine. As he says, normally you'd serve the good stuff first. And then after the guests have had a few, you'd, you'd bring out the cheaper stuff to save a few quid. But that's not what the groom did here, apparently. It looks like he did the opposite. He took the good wine and then brought out the great wine. See, what Jesus provides here isn't just a direct replacement or the next best thing. He gives the very best and he gives it in abundance. Now, 
it is it's worth mentioning here that in a room like this there'll be a wide range of experiences and, and opinions about drinking alcohol. We're not going to get into that tonight. That's not the point of the passage. But it is worth mentioning that if it is something you struggle with, then don't hold that to yourself. Do tell someone. Ask someone to pray for you. But wine for the people then was really, really important. In fact, there was a direct requirement for wedding ceremonies. It was commanded by God in the Old Testament law. And so it was important that wine was available. It was a vital part of the day as a symbol of joy and celebration. So we see Jesus turning water into wine. He doesn't do it with a big song and dance, some fairy lights and a smoke machine. No, he does it quietly behind the scenes. He doesn't use his incredible power to bring attention to himself. But he uses his power to bring honor to a shamed man. And to show his disciples who he is. See what John says in verse 11? What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The disciples saw Jesus and they believed in him. They saw him and they knew that there was something special about this man and they followed him. They knew that there was something else about him. This sign was enough for them and you can understand why. We see Jesus demonstrate his incredible power to show that he is worth following. But you know, in a sense, we're all like the groom here in this story. Like the groom, we deserve shame ourselves for our failure to do something. Our failure to do something much more serious than to provide enough wine at a party. We deserve to be shamed for our rejection of God. Our failure to honour him as he deserves. Our hearts, which are, are so bent in on themselves, are so focused on us rather than on him. And the Bible says that because of that, we too deserve to be shamed. But with that in mind, can you see that there's a wonderful picture of the good news of the gospel here? We see Jesus standing in for the groom, taking the shame that was going to be rightfully his and instead giving him honor. And this is just a a picture of what Jesus came to do. This is... What Jesus came to do is is essentially what the rest of John's gospel is about. We saw what he says in verse 4, that his hour has not yet come. And he says this time and time and time again until he is on the verge of death on the cross. When he says, my time has come. In that moment, when the Son of God hangs on that tree in unimaginable pain and totally ashamed, he takes our shame and our sin And he does away with it. He steps in to do what we cannot do for ourselves. To make us right in the eyes of God. Just like what he does with the groom here. He takes our shame and instead he gives us honour. By giving each and every one of us the opportunity to be made right in the eyes of God. By believing in Jesus, in his death and his future resurrection... We will not be shamed on that final day as we deserve, but we will be honoured despite our rejection of him and despite our failures. We will be honoured 
honored with eternal life in the presence of God. What a wonderful truth that is to know. To know that by faith alone we can be spared from the eternal shame because of what Jesus has done. This miracle that we've witnessed today, Jesus turning water into wine, is just a fraction of his greatest miracle. The miracle of dying for us on the cross and rising again to show that death has been defeated and we can have life forever with him in glory. That's the real reason why he came. Now I'm sure there will be some of you here this evening who who haven't trusted in Jesus yet. Some of you may want absolutely nothing to do with him. Some of you may be sat on the fence. But wherever you are, can I encourage you to to think about Jesus' claims, to think about who he is, to read about him for yourself in the Gospel of John. Because John wrote all of this down to show you the glory of Jesus. And like the disciples saw, he wants you to see that Jesus is worth believing in. As we've said a few times through this series, right at the end of John's book in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is true. Jesus really did do this for you, myself and many others here today are convinced that he did, then it makes the world a difference. It it means everything. Because one day, Jesus will return, and this time, he will be the perfect bridegroom. Just like he steps in here, in the place of the groom, one day, the Bible teaches he will return for the greatest wedding ever. The perfect union of the Lord Jesus and his people. On that day, the book of Revelation says they will be celebrating the like of which has never been seen. A great wedding celebration where people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every culture will come together as one to celebrate and to praise King Jesus. Who has provided for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. A way to be made right with God. If you're a Christian here this evening, I hope that thrills you. As we look around at at the world we live in at the moment, as we see the brokenness, the evil, the death that's all around us, just like we've remembered today, we know that one day that will all be done away with when Jesus returns to his bride, his people, the church. When life in in all its messiness seems like it's closing in around and you can't seem to see a way out, then look to Jesus. Look to what he's done for you and look to what he's promised to do for you in the future. A future that if you trust in him is firm and secure. But as we've been saved from the ultimate shame, we've also been saved from any guilt and any shame that we might feel today. If I was to, to pick on one of you and ask you to come out to the front here uh, and describe everything you've done, everything you've said, everything you've thought over the past week, I wonder how that would make you feel. If everything you've done and said was laid bare for all to see, I'm pretty sure you'd be feeling ashamed, right? Every thought, every word you've said. 
being a, a broken and sinful people as we are, there is a lot that we could be ashamed of. A lot that can make us feel guilty. Things that you did before you were a Christian. Mistakes that you've made. People that you've hurt. And even as a Christian, we can feel ashamed of the sin that is so deeply rooted inside us. Secrets that we've kept from our partners. Problems with debt, failures in marriage, addictions to drugs, alcohol, or pornography. Thoughts that you've had which no one even knows about. Guilt about not reading the Bible or praying. Feeling shame simply because who you think you are. See, these things can, can weigh heavily on us. And even though we might not see it at times, they can have profound impacts on our relationships with others, but also in our relationship with God. They can make us feel like we're distant from him or that he's angry with us and our failings. A quick search online shows a whole host of things that people can try and do to stop themselves feeling guilty, to stop themselves feeling ashamed. But if you're a Christian then the wonderful thing is that you no longer need to feel the weight of guilt and shame on yourself. Because Jesus, what he achieved on the cross, the forgiveness of your sin once and for all means that you're now free from any guilt or any shame that you feel because you have been totally and completely forgiven. So come to Jesus with your guilt and shame. You don't need to keep it to yourself. Bring it before God. Repent and ask for his help in dealing with it. Because Jesus has dealt with for it for you. And, and as well as admitting it before the Lord. The wonderful thing about being part of a church family. Is that you have a whole host of brothers and sisters who love you. And care for you. And want to help. I think too often. We like to put on this fake persona that makes it look like we've got everything sorted. There's nothing wrong with us. There's nothing that we feel shame over. That's not what we're called to be as a church. We're called as as a messy and broken group of people to come together to share our weaknesses and failings and then point each other to Jesus. So can I encourage you to do that? If there is something that's on your heart, weight of guilt and shame... Take it to the Lord, but let's share it together. Let's encourage and pray for each other. It's a wonderful privilege we have as being part of a church family. So this funny little occasion at a wedding in Cana signifies the start of Jesus' ministry. He chooses to show his incredible power by saving this young man from his shame and instead giving him honor. This miracle, as incredible as it is, is just a sign of what is to come. It points towards Jesus' greatest miracle, his sacrifice for us on the cross, and points us towards that final day when Jesus, our bridegroom, will return to make all things new. Jesus uses his power to save us from shame and to give us honor. As we come to a close I'm going to leave a moment of quiet Uh, and if there is something that you feel ashamed of guilt that's on your heart then take this moment in your own heart to pray and to give it to God 
And if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet for yourself, then spend a moment thinking about what we've seen this evening, about who Jesus is and what he claims to have done. And if you do have any questions, then then grab myself, grab Saab, grab anyone. We'd love to help you on that journey to find out more about who Jesus is. So a minute of quiet to pray in your own heart, and then I'll pray to finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus. Thank you that he became flesh and lived among us and performed these incredible signs to help us see who he is. Thank you that we can be spared from the ultimate shame because Jesus was willing to take it for us. Help us to to remember that and to see that, that trusting in him is the greatest decision that we can ever make. Help us to remember that we no longer need to bear the weight of our guilt and our shame and instead we can lay it at the feet of our Savior who can free us from it. Lord, we thank you. We ask for your help to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.